Join Global Jeans in Irvine, California, September 14th and 15th for the 6th Annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit. The event brings together patients, caregivers, advocates, and rare disease stakeholders to learn, connect, share, and partner. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2017 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Partnering is essential to advancing rare disease therapies. But while researchers, drug makers, and patient groups share a common desire to bring new treatments to market, differences in how they operate, their culture, and priorities can derail progress. We spoke to Karen Erickson, Associate Executive Director of Community Engagement at the Alpha One Foundation, about the elements of successful partnering, how to align the differing interests of the participants, and how to get everyone to work together to achieve common goals. Karen, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Alpha-1, a rare genetic disease with life-threatening manifestations, the Alpha-1 Foundation's work to accelerate the development of therapies, and how it's funded and partnered with drug companies as, as part of this work. Let's begin with Alpha-1, though. What is it? How rare is it? And, and how does the disease progress? Alpha. Alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency is a genetic disorder that can impact um, adults from a respiratory standpoint and can impact um, at any age on a liver standpoint. So it is basically a protein-folding disease. Uh, We have a genetic mutation that causes us to make a protein incorrectly. That protein is made in the liver and in its correct form would be exported into the bloodstream to get to the lungs where it works to protect our our lungs and create a check and balance with our immune system. Because the protein's made incorrectly, it unfolds and folds, and oftentimes in the liver cell, it folds back on itself, causing aggregate or clumps of protein. And what that does is not only take away its ability to be exported into the blood, but it, it those cause the liver cell death. So that leads to cirrhosis. And then, of course, because the protein is in clumps or it's destroyed because it's in the improper form, um, it doesn't get into the bloodstream to go to the lungs, which predisposes the person to lung disease. And that's where the word deficiency comes from. So it's an overabundance in protein getting stuck in the liver and then it's a deficiency because it can't get to the lungs because it hasn't made it out of the liver appropriately. How are people with the disease generally treated today, and what's the state of available therapies? We've done quite well on the pulmonary side. Um, We have augmentation therapy. We have four therapies available, all with an IV delivery, and all specifically to replace that protein that um, is in the correct form that we don't have in our bloodstream. So we do an IV infusion of human source plasma protein that augments the level, brings it up to a 
what we think is a protective level, um, but that is only for the lung disease. At this point, although we have some candidates in trials, um, at this point, there are only therapies for the lung disease for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And in a small cohort of our patient population, there is um, some skin manifestations, mainly in paniculitis. And what we found in that cohort is that augmentation therapy actually treats that as well. Um, so that's far less frequent, but um, I would say that from a skin disorder standpoint, if treated without the same augmentation therapy we use for pulmonary, we can usually knock down that, that response. Well, we've seen what appears to be a, an upswing in the role patient groups have played in partnering with biopharmaceutical companies and academic research institutes. What's been driving that? You know, it's funny that you ask that because um, – I don't know if it's new drivers or realizing the value that's always been there. We've been very fortunate um, in the way that our organization has been led. It, it was founded and led by patients. And so over two decades ago, we realized the value of the patient voice and patient-centeredness and engagement in research or every, you know, through in the, the entire life cycle of drug development and into patient care. Um, I think that that value is just now being realized um, in many cases because some models like ours have worked and in some other cases attention has been drawn to it from patient-focused drug development, the SUFA initiatives that come out of Congress and some of those mandates. So it's highly visible now um, for Corey as well. So the, the incredible platforms that we've used for, like I said, two decades, I think people are really finding the benefit to them now. And, and it's, it's sad that it's taken this long, but it's certainly pleasing to see. I think it's fair to say there's a, a learning curve organizations go through in, in working uh, across the aisle, as it were. Uh, there are cultural differences between organizations that could sometimes lead to frustrations or conflicts. This can be differences around such things as information sharing or tolerance for risk, and, and the need to be responsive to investors. Academic researchers can be focused on, on the need to publish. How, how do these sure. cultural differences play out, and, and how do you bridge them as a patient foundation? Well, I think in any time you, <laughs> you're doing anything other than individually contributing, you know, any time that you work in a team, whether it's in your same organizations or amongst or other organizations, there's cultural differences. The important thing, though, is to come in with a common goal. And initially, what drives you to that common goal may be very different. For us, it's to serve the patients. For an industry partner, perhaps it's the bottom line. What we found, though, is if you have that common goal, you can really do a skills assessment, and you can do a clear delineation of those skills as well as clearly define your expectations. Then you work towards it you know, utilizing people in the best way, in the best, in the best manner they can, they can sit around the table and bring their skill sets. It's spelled out from the get-go that transparency is there, the check-in points are there, the milestones are there, you, you know when you come together and you know what you discuss when you, when you get together. Um, so putting in those end goals, creating the expectations, and creating rules for all the team members, whether in the same organization or not, is crucial. Any good team is going to be a diverse one. 
it's just utilizing the skill sets in there and creating the expectations to do so. And, and as you look at the drug discovery and development continuum, where, where do you think patient groups can have the, the biggest impact? Look, if, if you come in trying to, if a patient group comes in and tries to find the spot where you're going to be, you know, have the biggest impact, I think that you're going about it the wrong way. You have to be able to come in as a patient advocacy group and understand that by playing on the entire continuum from pre-IND all the way up to um, therapy compliance and access and reimbursement and associated policies, um, you've missed the boat. There are, from patient perspectives, on up to patient needs and patient voice are critical the entire way through. If you expect to have a, a, a beneficial partner with industry partners or a beneficial partnership even in academia, you've got to be able, as a patient organization, to de-risk that continuum. I don't see it. I don't see it being hugely beneficial if you jump in at any one point. I think you need to be there from the get-go, and I think you need to be committed through the life cycle of the product and on through the commercialization and the use for hopefully many years to come. But it is certainly a continuation of de-risking um, the clinical trial design process, lending the patient voice, um, pursuing policy, and all the changes that need to take place afterwards. So no entry, you know, no no single point of entry, get in and get out. It is a continuum and a commitment from the get-go. Well, drug companies and patient organizations share a common goal in, in wanting to get therapies to market. Uh, I'm wondering if you could dive a little deeper on something you spoke to a moment ago. How do you overcome the differences between them and, and get everyone on the same page? Look, that common goal is the launch of a product. On the patient side, we're out here, certainly in the Alpha One world, desperate for uh, new therapies, desperate for unmet needs to be to be met in the community with um, the, the liver disease. Um, you know, I will I will say that there's very few organizations that are going to come in with say the the, the bankroll of of another um, industry partner, but again, the the skill sets that we bring, the patient perspective that we bring, um, is valuable. There is no one at an organization who has the patient uh, per perspective like a patient does, or a patient advocacy group who represents those those patients. Um, so, getting everyone on the on the same page is is it's interesting, right? So I wouldn't say that we're always on the same page. I would say we're in the same chapter and we're certainly in the same book. But figuring out who has what skill sets and where they mesh together, like we're not sitting around the table at an industry partner meeting or in a clinical trial design or protocol development meeting because we don't bring something unique to the table. I don't think anyone should be around the table until you've figured out what skill set you need. We have got to be extremely well-versed in what we do well and what we don't know. We set ourselves up for success. Our patient perspective is just that. It's, it's a gap that they have. But we, along the road, consistently 
take expertise that will allow us to take more and more seats at the table, whether it's our medical and scientific advisory group, our ethical, legal, and social issues group, um, grant advisory committee, whether it's um, an ad hoc group on clinical trial design, whether it's a team or working group on innovation strategies. I mean, these are all things where we can continue to garner support. But wherever we are around the table, it's because we come in with the expertise. And from the get-go, a patient or a patient um, organization can come in and enter the same page, get into the same chapter or the same book, because they come with that unique perspective, that unique skill set that is the, the patient perspective. Now, are there concerns um, about the mismatch and the cultural differences? Absolutely. Just as there's concerns when, when anybody meets. But I think if you're after that common goal and you build the best team, you're gonna, you're, you have the best opportunity to reach that goal. So, again, you don't negate any fears until you really show that you've helped to break down some of the barriers in, in the goal that they're trying to reach, which is commercialization of the process or commercialization of the therapy. As you rattled off the different committees, it spoke to another issue, which is that patient groups have become a lot more scientifically sophisticated over the past decade. People like yourself working for patient groups have, have come, in, in many cases, after years of working for industry. There's also a lot more sophistication among patients about the drug development process. Do mm -hmm. drug companies generally recognize this? Do they treat patient groups? as partners and equals? In our community, I would say yes, and uh, to a large degree, absolutely. But we've been around the table for a couple decades. We didn't forge into these partnerships without, or we didn't forge into to soliciting researchers, into um, um, giving out grants. Um, to sitting around the table with these partners until we set up the infrastructure and we knew what we could bring to the table, right? We did not put out a request for proposals um, or enter into any deals or, or get around the table before we started a patient registry, before we had a medical and scientific advisory council, you know, so before we had the ability to um, collect DNA and tissue, before we did a number of things. So we set up that base that made us valuable. Um, we had experts that ran that, that knew how to run registries, that knew how to run DNA and tissue banks. We wrote policies and procedures around there. Um, all of that was in place before we said, okay, we are, if you want to do Alpha One research, um, not only do we have all these things, but We've broken, or we've lessened the hurdles that you have to get over. We have the expertise that come with running it. We've talked to experts. We did so much research and brought the right people to our table before we ever asked to sit around someone else's. So I think it's important to know where your skill sets are. If you're coming in with a patient perspective that's valuable, that's that's one entry point. If you're coming in with a patient perspective and resources, a DNA and tissue bank, uh, a, a, a registry of patients you know, ready to sign up, um, that's 
very different. So you need to be incredibly transparent about where your skills are, where your assets are that you could add to the table, and then get around the table. It all comes to building the best team, having clear goals and expectations. You need to know what you're playing with and when. We think that by creating that infrastructure, um, it has opened up a lot of doors. And not only that, but it's made it very, it's made us very attractive as a disorder to investigators because that threshold to, to success has, has been lowered or, or the burden's in ease. Do patient groups need to be a source of funding to get the attention of researchers or drug developers and play a role, or are there other meaningful ways they can partner with them? One, I mean, if we, we've recently, um, in the last decade, we have started the Alpha One Project, which is a wholly owned uh, for-profit subsidiary of the Alpha One Foundation, and we do just that. We make investments um, in, in potential therapies. We created that because it was the next stage in what we were doing. We have de-risked the model and the, we have de-risked the clinical trial design or the continuum of, of product development as much as we can with our resources. Now we actually put money behind it because the last thing that we want to happen is to have a potential therapy put on the shelf because it doesn't seem like a viable target. So by coming in with the funding, we can, I mean, we're never going to, in our, in our not-for-profit status, we're never going to take something through full-phase commercialization. That's not what our money is. But what we do is lend our voice, um, and that one can, can be attractive to other investors, um, two, um, the, the resources that we discussed earlier are already at the table. Um, and three, it adds us, you know, it, it adds potential for us to have some negotiating on what move forward. Do you need to make the funding? Absolutely not. Um, it's, it's just the next step in kind of in de-risking and making sure that that translational valley of death is a little bit easier for these organizations to get through. And if a patient, if, if a patient group does provide funding, do, do you sense any difference in the relationship, whether it's a grant or a, a purchase of equity, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if it's if it's a if it's a grant, it's just that. I mean, they're two completely different um, designs. They're designed for very different things. We come in um, if if we provide funding, we have a conversation around what it looks like at sale, at commercialization, at different steps. And, and we may, you know, if, if we come in and have one conversation with someone, it may look very different depending upon the, the goals of the organization or what they see um, happening in their commercialization, scale-up, sell, licensing, et cetera. Um, but, it, it, I mean, grants versus funding on a kind of for-profit side are – by design, two very different things. So I don't know that you need both, or, or one or the other is better. Um, I'm wondering, do, do you do you feel the the partner treats you differently uh, as an investor, say, as opposed to a grant maker? I would say I would say there is potential for that. Um, 
we have we have really built a culture around Alpha One um, as a community, the research, the sharing um, of, of you know created assets. We've we've built a community where I would say that from a, the way we get treated, the difference is far less in our organization. But yeah, absolutely. If you come in as an investment partner, I would say that there's there's likely going to be a, a different view. Um, but on the same hand, you're still using, in, in most cases, all of the other resources. What we've done, though, is, is, is on the investment standpoint, or what we hope we do when we come in on a funding standpoint versus a grant standpoint, is, is um, prevent work from stopping and um, absolutely facilitate a potential therapy moving forward. But again, very different endpoints and by design, very different. Um, so, you know, I could envision that treatment is different. I would say in our organization, um, the differences are minimized because of the culture that we bring with it. And as you look across the, the various partnerships you've had, what would you say the critical elements of success have been? And, and how can you ensure the best chance of success going forward? Like any incredible project, know what resources you need to be successful. Know what goal you're going for. Know how you're going to measure whether or not you're, you're getting there. Um, define roles. Uh, know what your milestones are. Um, and attract the best players. Karen Erickson, Associate Executive Director of Community Engagement for the Alpha One Foundation. Karen, thanks so much for your time today. Yes, sir, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.